it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, September the 12th, 2022. Welcome into a brand new broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show. I am your host, Guy Benson. Delighted to have you all here Every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you can't listen as we air, which we recommend, there's a podcast that is free and on demand every day, GuyBensonShow.com. Very straightforward. Everything you need to know right there, GuyBensonShow.com. You can also go to FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are there free of charge. On social media, at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram, You can toss us a follow if you are interested. Some bonus content over there sometimes, plus a preview of our guests on a daily basis. And I'll now reveal them for today's show right now. Coming up later this hour, Governor Chris Sununu, Republican, New Hampshire. He is going to be here. He's up for re-election this year. He's also weighing in on some key primaries ahead of tomorrow's elections in that state. He is backing some people in Republican primaries the stakes of which could be pretty high. We'll ask him about that and a few other topics coming up just about half an hour from right now. Then to kick off our middle hour, our second hour of three, Tiffany Smiley is running for the U.S. Senate in Washington State. She's a Republican. She is challenging Patty Murray, the longtime Democratic incumbent. Some polling has shown this to be a mid-single-digit race. Tiffany Smiley is a very impressive person. I think she presents very well. Compelling background. Interesting story. We will talk to her about that David versus Goliath type contest against Patty Murray, who at least seems nervous enough to have been spending a lot of money attacking Smiley early on in the process. Looking forward to that conversation. And then Howie Kurtz, our in-house media critic and Media beat journalist here at Fox News, host of Media Buzz. I want to ask him about some shakeups across cable news. Maybe get his take on his former show over at CNN, Reliable Sources, which has now been canceled. Plus, how much coverage of the Queen's death in the aftermath is appropriate? How much is overkill? Because there's an awful lot of this coverage. And I know some people are just lapping up every second of it. They want to just basically binge all things related to the queen and her memory and the upcoming funeral. Other people are saying, is this really the right amount of coverage? Is it commensurate to the event? And I'm sure Howie will have some thoughts on that. We will get to him in our final hour here today. As we begin the show, I want to play a few sound bites from NBC's Meet the Press yesterday. In fact, we'll be playing a couple sound bites from different parts of the show over the course of today's program here. Coming up, for example, in the next hour, I would like to address their panel conversation about the 2022 midterms, where there is a big flare-up over abortion and a point that one of the panelists made. 
The only conservative on the panel happened to be a male, and people saying, well, you can't say that because you're a man. I have some thoughts. That's coming up next hour. We'll delve into that. What I want to come out of the gate with, though, also from that NBC show, Sunday morning show hosted by Chuck Todd, was Todd's interview with the vice president, Kamala Harris. And in some ways, it's a relief because this is kind of like a nationally televised wellness check on our vice president from whom we have not heard in quite some time. Starting to get a little worried about the well-being of Kamala Harris. Where is she? Now she's, you look at her schedule, she's here, she's there, she's doing events very occasionally, but it really seems like they've been keeping her under wraps more than usual overall. Can't imagine why, but she emerged to do an interview with Chuck Todd that aired yesterday. Now, before I play some of that sound and before I start to critique her, let me actually say something positive. And I mean this sincerely, at least she did the interview. Right? At least she sat down opposite a journalist. I'm not sure how hard-hitting the interview was. I think perhaps she could have gotten a tougher interview, uh, certainly on some of the questions. But this was a major network, American television, an extended back and forth with the cameras rolling, an opportunity for a journalist to ask multiple follow-ups, this is precisely the type of setting that the President of the United States has been avoiding for months. And I understand that the media and journalists often complain about access, and they always want more access to decision-makers and lawmakers and principals, and especially the President of the United States. And you hear from Corrine Jean-Pierre, for example, at the White House podium, she was asked about this recently, and she and Saki circle back, her predecessor, would often do the same type of thing where someone would raise an objection saying, you know, the president hasn't done an actual press conference in X number of days or an interview for X number of weeks or months, and they both sort of chuckle. Oh, ha, ha. well, you all know the president answers your questions all the time. Come on, come on. We, we don't have anything to announce on that right now, but the president takes lots of questions. The president occasionally take shouted questions here or there. He does little media avails from time to time. A quick scrum like that, a handful of questions, is not the same thing as a sustained series of questions in an interview where it's just one-on-one and there's more give and take, more opportunity to probe, to dig a little bit deeper, where it's harder to dodge a question, especially if someone doggedly wants to get an answer. Follow-ups are expected. It's a different setting. It's a different style of interview or Q&A. And I think it's very valuable. And this president, Joe Biden, has not sat down for a televised interview on an American network. So a TV interview in America, the country that he's supposedly running, since he taped an interview with Lester Holt of NBC News in advance of the Super Bowl, and most of it aired on Super Bowl Sunday, but the taping was February 10th of 2022. That is the last televised broadcast interview this president has done. February 10th? 
So you go February to March, to April, to May, to June, to July, to August, to September. That is seven months and a few days now. Seven months. Well over half a year. I'm not saying that Joe Biden needs to be out there giving sit-down interviews left and right all the time. You could argue that his predecessor was oversaturated in terms of interviews and questions he would answer. It was a different approach. This is an attempted basement strategy of presidenting. It should not be acceptable. Given what's happening in the world, and this president hasn't granted a sit-down interview in a broadcast setting in the United States for seven-plus months, that is extraordinary to me. They're hiding him. And they're doing it for a reason. So, in that narrow sense, kudos and credit to the vice president for doing something that the man in charge hasn't done for seven months. She was asked, among other things, about the border because she is, lest we forget, and it's very easy to forget, actually, the border czar. She's in charge of the administration's response at the southern border. So it's really like a tag team effort. Alejandro Mayorkas and Kamala Harris. Isn't that a dynamic duo on this front? And the results, well, are speaking for themselves. So Chuck Todd asked the vice president, is the border secure? And let's just listen to how she tackled that one. She hasn't really been there. She went there for about two seconds to a much more secure area on the border with a wall to check the box. That's the only time she's been down there since she was a candidate for president when she really cared about these issues deeply. The children, all these unaccompanied kids in cages. And she went, she had her binoculars, remember, and she was waving at the children. And she said these are crimes against humanity being committed by the Trump administration. And now she's the border czar. She won't go. So we're all seeing the results. We cover them regularly here. Pretty straightforward question. Is the border secure? Let's listen. Cut five. Would you call the border secure? I think that there is no question that we have to do what the president and I asked Congress to do. Is the first request we make, pass a bill to create a pathway to citizenship. The border is secure. But we also have a broken immigration system, in particular over the last four years before we came in, and it needs to be fixed. We're going to have two million people cross this border for the first time ever. You're confident this border is secure? We have a secure border in that that is a priority for any nation, including ours and our administration. I mean, what can you even say? Twice she asserts that we have a secure border. You can almost hear in her voice that she doesn't believe it, right? Am, am I am I hearing that the way you are? Where she, it's like this halting, stilted thing where she says the words, but it's almost like it's physically painful for her to say them because she doesn't believe them. But she says them. That is the official line of this administration, that the border's secure, which is a joke. And sort of the gentle pushback, fair pushback from Todd is like, well, we're going to have uh, two million People coming across, it's never happened before. Are you really, uh, you're going to go with that? And she's, yep. Yes, we are. I would note that by the end of the year, there will have been 
a million gotaways, known gotaways that we know of, a million, one million known gotaways in a year. That has nothing to do with encounters and people who were stopped and people being processed. There's an unknowable universe of other people who've come in undetected, as we always point out, but of people that we know came in here. They were caught on cameras or motion sensors, but we didn't have the wherewithal to go capture them. It's going to be a million people, a million in one year, illegal, illegal immigrants, in addition to all the other people who crossed illegally and then were processed and released. Now we're in the ballpark of millions. And the vice president of the United States, who is in charge, this is her portfolio, goes on national television and says, yes, the border is secure. And the one piece of criticism, the one hedge that she offers is that it's Congress's fault that they didn't pass a path to citizenship, basically an amnesty, which would incentivize even more illegal immigration. Like, they could at least pretend to say we need more enforcement mechanisms and money passed by Congress to at least pretend that they're interested in enforcement. No, the one criticism to deflect to another branch of government, because a lot of these are unilateral, terrible decisions being made by the executive branch and Team Biden. Harris, Mayorkas, that whole crew. But the one deflection away is, oh, Congress should pass a path to citizenship. By the way, something that I used to be much more in favor of, or at least a path to legalization, I'm a hard no on that now, as long as this crisis continues anywhere at these levels, which it will, based on the incentive structure. It is absolutely insulting to come out and keep saying this, but they do. And the one solution that she mentions out there is for Congress to make the magnet even stronger with a mass amnesty. (laughs) This is amazing. Then Chuck Todd asked her about this phenomenon that we've been talking about, where Democrats, including the president, famously in the speech in Philadelphia, are very concerned about the threat to democracy posed by MAGA Republicans. And then same Democrats turn around and spend tens of millions of dollars around the country boosting MAGA Republicans in Republican primaries. Is that a good idea? Chuck Todd asked the vice president in Cut 6. When you see the Democratic Party and some parts of the party funding ads to promote some of these election deniers in primaries, whether it's Michigan, the high-profile race there, Illinois, Colorado, New Hampshire. It looks like a cynical, you know, a little bit cynical. And the president went out of his way to say there, there are good Republicans here. Should you leave the good Republicans alone in a primary? Should, is, the, is the Democratic Party making a mistake here by, by, you know, those people could win? If you're not careful. I mean, listen, I'm not going to tell people how to run their campaigns. Uh, you know, I, I ran in terms of statewide office. Oh, I'm not going to tell people how to run their campaigns. Really? She'll weigh in on a bunch of other things. She'll talk about MAGA Republicans and the threat to democracy. Should we not be boosting those people? Oh, no comment. I, I couldn't possibly comment. They went on cut seven. Brand. Would you have done this? Is this in your? Is this something I, you'd be I'm comfortable doing? I'm not going to tell people how to run their campaigns, Chuck. I ran for a statewide for attorney general, re-election, won both times for Senate, won that race, and I know that it is best to 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 let a candidate, along with their their advisors, 
Let them make the decision based on what they believe is in the best interest of their state. I'm not going to tell people what You're to do. You're not worried that, that this reflects poorly on the Democrats? I think that what we have to focus on is that in 60 days, as of this interview, in less than two months, we are looking at a midterm election in which so much is on the line. Uh huh. Uh huh. He asks the question. She says, I won't tell other people how to run their campaigns. All right, well, would you do this personally? Oh, I I wouldn't tell other people what to do. That wasn't the question, Madam Vice President. And by talking all around it the way that she did, the short answer is she supports it. The Democrats don't believe their own rhetoric. Their actions and their money spending speaks much louder than their meaningless words. And she, without endorsing it, is certainly not condemning it. This is a tacit endorsement of the strategy to accumulate power, period, end of story. So there's the vice president on national TV yesterday. We'll break. We'll come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know... You're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Since we're talking about the vice president, she did also make an appearance recently at the National Space Council at a meeting. And she was not fixated this time on the significance of the passage of time, but instead on the word work, which made many appearances in just 20 seconds. Listen to Cut 25. Today, the business of our work is for the council to report on the work that has occurred since our last meeting across these areas. We will today also discuss the work yet ahead, the work we must still do to continue to move forward. Just word salad nothingness. Four appearances from the word work there in that very short soundbite that said and communicated nothing at all, which is sort of her specialty. We actually fed the transcript into our algorithm And we have this summary of what the vice president had to say. Cut 26. This is very well said, Madam Vice President. As always, 
When we come back, the governor of New Hampshire joins us live, Chris Sununu, on some big endorsements in the primaries coming up in that state tomorrow. You don't want to miss that. One-on-one with the governor, Chris Sununu, of New Hampshire, when we come back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Welcome back. It's the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Every day our podcast is free. GuyBensonShow.com. It's on demand. No charge after the show is over. Joining us now is the governor of New Hampshire, Republican Chris Sununu. Governor, it's great to have you back on the show. Guy, always great to be on your show. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and I know that you guys have a big day ahead tomorrow in New Hampshire. You take your election days extra seriously, big primaries in your state, and you have weighed in on a significant one just in the last couple days, the Republican primary for U.S. Senate, which will select who will take on Maggie Hassan, the incumbent Democrat, in November, a winnable seat that you and I have talked about before. Uh, Let's talk about your endorsement, uh, why you decided to go with your preferred candidate, and what you think is at stake. Sure, sure. So I I endorse Chuck Morse. Uh, In New Hampshire, we're very results-driven, right? So uh, Chuck is is the current president of the Senate. He's the one that worked with me directly to putting all these new mental health programs in place, for example, or rebuilding, completely rebuilding our opioid uh, treatment and recovery system, which we now call the Doorway, which frankly is getting better results than almost anywhere in the country, and we're very proud of that. But you got to be able to stand up and say, we did this, we did that, we brought ideas to the table. We implemented funding here. We're building it. You know, he helped me buy the new mental health hospital for children. He, he wants to move the ball forward as opposed to, I'm fighting for this. I'm trying to do that. Like, that's all you hear from these candidates now. It's like, it's nauseating. How about actually getting a record of, of success? And I think that's what folks are going to want in November. He's also clearly the candidate that is most likely to beat Maggie Hassan in November. And I think that's a very winnable race. So um, look, at the end of the day, nothing matters if you don't win in November, right? You can't govern if you don't win, so you need to vote for candidates that have the best chance of winning, that have that record of of, uh, success, and he has it. So I'm behind him 110 percent. I think he's going to do very well tomorrow. Well, I mean, it does appear that the Democrats are making quite clear who they want to run against, and it's not your guy. It's the other guy, right? They're spending money meddling again. We've seen this all across the country, spending millions of dollars trying to come into a Republican primary and boost someone that they think would be weaker or easier to beat. You know, of course, the irony is the president and the Democrats are out there calling those types of candidates fundamental threats to the country and then spending millions to boost them, which seems um, cynical at the very least. But I just generally feel that when the Democrats are trying to tell us who they want to run against collectively, perhaps as conservatives, we shouldn't give them precisely what they're asking for. It's just like a thought that I have. 
Oh, yeah, you think? I mean, look, I, I don't know where you are. I think this whole idea that Democrats or even can play in Republican primaries or Republicans could play in Democrat primaries, I think that's a total nonsense. I think they need to ban that process one way or the other. Um, and can you imagine being – guy? imagine if you're a Democrat donor, just for a second, a lot of suspension of, of reality right there, but you're a Democrat donor knowing that your money is funding these extreme right candidates because you know the other side of that coin is it what, what you see in Pennsylvania uh, or some of these uh, Illinois, Arizona, uh, you might just get what you asked for, right? And to, to the Democrats' uh, surprise, so it's a very bizarre tactic. There's millions being spent there, uh, and yeah, it is a telltale sign when the Democrats are trying to get someone elected. Probably not the person we should be electing in our primaries. Do you have any thoughts in terms of the House races? Because I know that potentially, especially in a wave year, they could both be winnable. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I made sure that both of our House seats are winnable. We've got very good candidates on both sides. I, I, I've endorsed um, uh, uh, Hansel over in CD2. First time, I think, in uh, like a decade that that is now a toss-up race, our CD2 race. That was formerly a Democrat, firm, solid Democrat seat is no longer. It's very winnable. And then, of course, our CD1, which is also very winnable, also a toss-up race. There's five candidates going at it in a primary tomorrow, and we'll see what happens there. But again, you, you got to elect people uh, that can win in November. At the, you know, we can have all of our passions and all of our principles, and I'm not saying throw your principles aside, but remember, we can, if you don't elect someone that is electable uh, to the general population, that galvanizes independence, that gets people excited, that stays positive, that knows how to you know, run a good ground game campaign and raise money and do all those things that you have to do to get over the, over the finish line. If you're not getting over the finish line, then we're just going to be going, oh, shucks, what happened? Well, we elected the wrong person in the primary. That happens all the time. Let's not be that example. Uh, let's lead by example instead and, and really put for folks forward that can drive home and win all three seats for us. And you're pushing, as we mentioned, Chuck Morris for U.S. Senate. That race is tomorrow. You said part of his background and, and part of what informed your decision is he's the Senate president. And so he's got some achievements under his belt. Also, he's not a first-time candidate for public office that's some of what we've seen around the country, a number of these Republicans, and who knows what will happen in November. I, you know, I think this is a very dynamic situation. I think Republicans, based on a lot of different factors, should have a good night, whether it's great or relatively lousy but still okay. That remains to be seen. But in some of these important races where candidates might be underperforming in the polls, at least for now, certainly struggling to raise money. One of the common factors, I know everyone wants to make it all about Trump and who he's backing. And, and I think, you know, there's there's probably something to that. And maybe it's a conversation to have after November when we see what's happened. But one of the actual commonalities is a lot of these folks who are at least struggling in certain aspects have never run for public office before. And now they're trying to become, you know, senators. Um, and that sometimes helps because people are looking for outsiders, but there's also something to be said for experience and having sort of been to the rodeo before. How do you view that? Yeah. No, you need a ground game. And, a, and and it isn't just, well, if I have a good message and I can raise some money, it's all going to work out. That's not the way it works. You need to know how to talk to folks, how to listen to folks, how to really connect with people in an empathetic way on the campaign trail, where to go, the timing of things, you know, how to nuance your message. You got about 22 seconds with a, the average citizen. So what are the points that they, they want to hear and what, how are you going to interact with them so they feel heard? I mean, and so there is a, there's an art to it. Where do you 
knock on the doors? You know, how hard do you go on on the, the, the your base versus the independent voters? Um, so there there is a whole art to it. And and it, again, I hate the term establishment. Right? Mm-hmm. What does establishment mean? It, it means oh, there's a bunch of people that are really have been really successful at public service and getting elected and, and know how to do it right. I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a very good thing. There's something to be learned from there. So um, it's not about Trump or not Trump. I know the media likes to go there, but people are going to vote in November about their their checking their checking accounts, right? How fast they have to pay these monstrous electricity bills or the heating oil bills that are that are perpetually going to going to come for for probably the next two years here, um, or just putting gas in their car to get to work, right? Uh, inflation is very very real. It is crushing middle and lower income families. Those are the things that are going to drive people, as opposed to this political stuff. But again. You need the right candidates that have the right ground game that can that can deliver it. I've gotten elected three times uh, in the last, geez, six years. I'm running for my fourth term, but I have to get elected every two years. It's kind of crazy. Um, and there is something to to be said about how to run a campaign, how to get results, and and how to craft that message so people believe in it. They get inspired by it. it doesn't mean they agree with you on everything. That's that's okay. But they have to be inspired that you are going to fight for them and actually fight to get results and and can deliver a win. I can almost imagine Mitch McConnell listening right now to this interview live and saying to himself, you know, Chris, if you don't want to run every two years, there's there's a place uh, called the Senate where we'd love to have you. Uh, and, I you think know, he literally we- said that to me, actually. I think that was literally one of the arguments he tried to make to me, <laughs> which I think stinks. Let me tell you something. I, the worst part about running for something for six years is this. Uh, I'm a CEO, and I just know I, – I, I don't know if they could handle me down in Washington, to be frank about it. But my fear was I run. Oh, I don't have to run for six more years. That sounds terrible to me because if I'm miserable after the first two, I'm stuck there for four more. I'm 47. I got a life to, a life to leave. I got opportunity. I want to protect my state and actually get stuff done. So that is actually a disincentive for someone like myself. Interesting. But, you know, you say that your candidate – Morris is the best positioned person to beat Maggie Hassan. Others would oh, say, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to the guy who would hypothetically be that person. You made that choice, though, months ago. There's no point in, in relitigating it. But I am curious, even though you're not running against her, you're going to be backing the Republican against her, uh, and we've got two months to go till the election. What is the New Hampshire case against another term for Senator Maggie Hassan? Well, first, you got to show up. I mean, she literally did not show up in the state for the first five years of her first term in the U.S. Senate. Like, she literally didn't wasn't here. She she wouldn't come to events. She wasn't engaging in the public. She wasn't answering questions. Um, to this, I don't know if she's ever ever held a press conference. I used to hold a press conference every single day. I let the press ask me anything they wanted until they got exhausted and had nothing left to ask. She's never shown up. So, whether you agree with policy or, or not, a Republican or Democrat in New Hampshire, you got to be here. That's what we're all about. You've got to be engaging with us, look us in the eye, having the tough conversations. And it's okay to have tough conversations. It's okay not to have the exact answer that people are looking for. People want to know that you can stand on your own two feet, and she's been completely absent. And then the global question that we all ask is, gee, why, why – 
what do we do to fix Washington? Washington's broken. I think everybody across both parties agrees with that. Well, you can't keep sending the same people back and expecting a different result. So you got to change it up. And so when you just haven't been here, you haven't shown the willingness to change anything. Clearly all politics all the time. And, and it's shown. She spent $35 million so far on her race. Her approval rating has gone from 42% to 42%. I mean, literally hasn't budged. I could care less if she spent $150 million on her race. It ain't going to matter. People in New Hampshire want to change, which is why there's a whole host of candidates lining up to beat her. And the other thing is, and that was a very New Hampshire-centric answer, which is what I asked for, but sitting from where I sit and looking up at that race, and you look at Maggie Hassan and you look at her voting record, she's just kind of just like this non-entity in the U.S. Senate, and what you can count on her to be is a lockstep automatic vote for whatever Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden ask her to do, right? If Kamala Harris and Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi want something and they need votes for it, she's there. I can't think of a single exception, let alone a meaningful one to that. And I'm not sure that that really aligns with the spirit of New Hampshire either. No, you got to stand on. Look, we are New Hampshire first. We're incredibly proud of our state. We're very anti-Washington here for the most part. Um, we uh, totally understand that, that we created you, Washington. The states created Washington, and we try to remind folks of that all the time. Um, I get it. You, you, some of these folks go to D.C. and they get sucked into this bubble. Uh, she's a, a great example of that. Um, she never even tried to, to break out. It was, what do, what do I have to do to, to keep my job? What do I have to do to keep the money rolling in? Oh, that's not consistent. Service. That's not constituency. No, this is a public service. It's not a career, right? So treat it as the service it is. Understand that the job, it, like for me, the job is bigger than me. This ain't about Chris Noon. The job is bigger than what I'm trying to do in, in, in terms of the, the outreach I have to have and the willingness to bring people in. Can't do that if you're, if you're actually not in state. So um, I, think, I think there's an awesome opportunity here to be, I was hoping to be maybe the 54th or 55th Senate vote, um, given how some of the other races are a little shaky. I think they'll all come back, uh, Georgia, Pennsylvania, some of the others, but maybe with a 51st or 52nd. But it's going to be a critical vote, very, very winnable race, um, and it's going to be exciting. It's really going to be exciting. Speaking of showing up or not showing up, broadening this out beyond New Hampshire, there have now been a couple Democrats in major statewide races that are either not committing to debating their Republican opponents at all or have now outright said they will not. For example, in the Arizona governor's race, Katie Hobbs is not going to debate. John Fetterman really playing games with whether or not he's going to debate Dr. Oz. I just wonder, as someone who's done this for a while, and, and as you said, you're a chief executive, you're a governor, and you talk about the importance of showing up, what do you make of candidates who won't debate? And that might apply to some Republicans, too. Cowards. Look, the, the, you, you don't deserve the job if you're not willing to stand up in your general election, where it's clearly going to be a close race, where there are clearly important uh, issues on the line. I don't care what party you're from. You've got to get out there and, and, and be part of that message. Now, look, if you're in a primary up by 70 points or whatever, it's, I mean, okay, I get it. You don't need to debate everyone just because they signed, put their name on the list. But when it comes to a general election, in most of these races where it comes down to you know 10 points or less either way, I mean, it really is more than that, you've got 
to be up there and because rep- you're not just representing you and your position. You're representing your party, right? You're representing the party's platform, especially on something with Congress, Senate, Governor, whatever it is. So in a general election of absolutely, you got to step up. You got to be there and, and be proud of it. Be excited for it. I don't know what you'd be what these individuals would possibly be afraid of uh, in doing that. It will reflect negatively on them if they don't. There's no doubt. Governor, last question. I believe that this is the second time you have been my guest on this show since February. If my if we go back through the archives, I think that's correct twice. And you've been on many times before that. I mentioned that context because at the top of the show I was mentioning and talking about the vice president, the interview that she did on Meet the Press yesterday. I was not terribly impressed, but at least she did it. Unlike the president, President Biden has not done a broadcast interview with an American outlet since the Super Bowl. And we're now in a new NFL season. It was February 10th of of this year, February 10th, 2022. That was his last broadcast interview, an NBC interview, and he hasn't done one since. As someone who answers so many questions all the time, you talked about press conferences, you know that one-on-one sit-down interviews, it's a whole different ballgame. It's a different dynamic opportunities for pushback and follow-ups and all of that. Uh, What do you make of President Biden and his team keeping him away from that setting for seven-plus months now? Yeah, look, they, they, they basically put him into Al Gore's lockbox, right? So when when he was running in New Hampshire, he, he same thing. He wouldn't talk to the president, I think, for something like 100 straight days. And what happened? He came in fifth place in the New Hampshire primary. We tried to warn you all what a knucklehead this guy was, right? We tried to warn you. No one wanted to listen. They elected him president. But that's that has been his MO, not just for the past few months, but for, for quite a long time, because he goes these incredibly long stretches. I, my sense is, um, you know, someone asked me about you know his big speech a week ago that Faustian type speech with the red lights we could go on all day about that and all the nonsense he was he was espousing and people said I, you know can you believe Joe Biden would would you know say that and I said look he's not saying he's just reading what they're putting in front of him at this point someone else is pulling these strings you have some 25 year old you know ultra progressive Turk uh, in the White House writing this stuff and he's getting on stage and reading it they're using him as the political pawn as opposed to the national leader that he's supposed to be more of a political pawn than anything, and then they're going to drive him out. I have, I have no doubt Joe Biden will not be running in 2024. I really don't believe that at all. It's going to be a wide-open race on both sides. Um, and so they, I think they know that. I think they're predicting that. And so they're just kind of using him how they want to use him to drive a certain message. I don't think there's some grand strategy I, other than – you know, don't let him screw this yeah. up for us. Keep him out of the press. Who cares what, what it looks like to him? Who cares uh, the effect it has on America? As long as the Democrat Party is getting something politically out of it. Yeah, um, well, they're trying. And, and we'll see. We'll see if that actually pays dividends for them. We've got to leave it there. Chris Sununu, governor of New Hampshire, big night tomorrow in that state in the primaries. Bigger night, of course, all across the country, November 8th. Governor, always a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, brother. Be good. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on the Guy Benson Show. We talked about this last week. The mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, attacking Greg Abbott, Texas governor, for busing some illegal immigrants from the border up to Chicago. She said that was racist. She said that was a a bad Christian thing to do. He's a bad Christian for doing that. Well, guess what? They arrived in Chicago, and Mayor Lightfoot put them on another bus and sent them into the suburbs, a more conservative area. 
to get him out of her jurisdiction. Would that be racist? Would that be anti-Christian or something, Lori? I would love to know. (laughs) Amazing. That whole story continues to just astound. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show is on tap. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our middle of three, between three and six p.m. Eastern every weekday. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free of charge on demand every day. Fox News alert as we begin this hour. The Dow closing up 231 points today, ending at 32,383. The markets are hoping that tomorrow's report that's going to come out on inflation will be less bad. I mean, it's still going to be bad. But the hope is that maybe some slow progress is being made. I guess we'll find out tomorrow, but uh, more gains on Wall Street today. Very pleased to welcome to the show for the first time, Tiffany Smiley. She is an advocate for veterans. She's also running for the United States Senate in Washington State against the incumbent Democrat, Patty Murray, who we played some last week of her here on the show. And Tiffany, it is great to have you. Thank you, Guy. Thanks for having me on. So happy to uh, be sharing my message with you today. Yeah, so I've heard a fair amount of buzz about you uh, here in the other Washington, right? Washington, D.C. Yes. You've been raising money really well uh, in a way that a lot of, I think, other Republican candidates maybe are paying some attention to because it hasn't been the best cycle for fundraising. You're performing well. I've heard that, you know, your campaign has been very energetic. Clearly, the Murray campaign was worried they were coming out early, spending money attacking you over the summer. Give our audience just an overall sense of who you are, where you come from, and how you ended up in this race against Patty Murray at this point in your life. Yes, well, you know, I am very excited because we do have the momentum right now and and recent polling shows that I'm actually neck and neck with Patty Murray, um, and we're not stepping off the gas at all. You know, I've been at this for 17 months. Our family certainly knows how to build from the ground up. Um, I was 11 years old when Patty Murray was first elected. So I was born and raised in Washington State. I'm a farm girl. So learned the value of hard work and grit and going the extra mile at a young age. And my American dream um, was I wanted to be a nurse and married, married my high school sweetheart, Scotty Smiley. Um, he was a newly commissioned officer from the United States Military Academy. So I often joke he was an officer. I was a nurse. My new last name was Smiley. Uh, didn't get very much more American dreamish than that. And and it really, in some regard, I thought, you know, I had achieved the American dream. I was the first in my family to graduate with a bachelor's of science or to graduate with any four-year degree. Um, and so I thought we had achieved our American dream. And all of that came to a screeching halt when, um, at 23 years old, I resigned from my nursing job here in Washington State. I took a one-way flight out to Walter Reed Army Medical Center, the old Walter Reed, just up the road um, from the Capitol. 
And I walked into my husband's trauma care unit where he had tubes coming out of every orifice of his body. He was in a coma. He was unrecognizable from the life-saving medication they were pumping into him. He was paralyzed on the right side of his body. And one thing was certain, it's that um, the suicide bomber that he was negotiating with in service to our country in Mosul, Iraq, had detonated his car. And the shrapnel from that car obliterated both of Scotty's eyes so he would never, ever see again, permanently blind the rest of his life. That's really when my fight began, um, and really, it's in some ways, you know, I say politics found us. We didn't find politics. Um, at a young age, I really understood how policy affects real people, and um, thank God I was a nurse. Thank God I wasn't afraid of the medical system. I, in fact, I knew exactly what to do to fight and advocate for my husband. I took on the Army, took on the DOD. I had this crazy idea that Perhaps, Scotty, you know, I knew I could help him make a miraculous recovery um, being a nurse. I, I was, you know, fully committed to that and um, had this crazy idea that perhaps he could stay on active duty. And the Army looked at me like I was crazy, but was able to build a coalition, help Scotty get back on his feet, took on the Army, and, and my husband went on and became the first blind active duty officer to ever serve our country. Oh, wow. That is just an incredible story and this all sort of hit you it sounds like like a ton of bricks all at once when you feel like okay this is the life that i wanted things are going great and then right. you know things take a turn and in this case a really scary one that was yeah. years ago here you are now in yeah. 2022 taking on an entrenched incumbent yes. well-funded democrat in a state that is quite blue I know some of the polling has shown that you're, you know, within single digits or even, you know, potentially margin of error. You've got momentum. They're taking you seriously over in the Murray camp. You mentioned in that in that answer that you were a kid in school when she was first elected, Patty Murray. And I've read a bit about her. She ran sort of as this mother in tennis shoes taking on the establishment, uh, whatever that was back then. She's the opposite now, right? You're kind of – it's kind of a role reversal in some ways here. Yeah, it, it absolutely is a role reversal. You know, I think when Patty Murray first got into this, you, exactly right. You know, they said, you're just a mom in tennis shoes. You can't run for Senate. And she did, but it's clear over the last 30 years that she has forgotten about Washington. She now serves Washington, D.C. So that's why I'm in this fight because – I will serve the people of Washington and be a voice for them because we have real um, problems here in Washington State. We have real issues. You know, Patty Murray um, doubled down on education, you know, knowing uh, she was asked on CNN, knowing what you know now, Patty Murray, as an educator, you know, as yep. the mom in tennis shoes, would you do anything different now that you see the plummeting um, test scores and reading and math and you see the self-harm and the suicides? Would you change anything? And she doubled down and said no. Yeah, no I mean, regrets. Yeah, no regrets. So so she served Washington, D.C. And, and votes almost 100 percent with Joe Biden. And I'm here to fight for Washington state. I always say there's a new mom in town um, hmm. and we're here to be a voice for the people. How would you describe your political ideology? Because, you know, as I would say, and I did say a moment ago, Washington state is not terribly hospitable to conservatives statewide, certainly. So being sort of a, a right winger, uh, probably not a path to success in your state, but also 
there's a base that's conservative. They want people to stand for something. You want to present to people who might not typically vote for Republicans to give you a strong, hard look. How do you describe your ideology and how are you trying to pull together a coalition that would be necessary to do in some ways what feels like the unthinkable and beat Patty Murray in November? Yeah, well, it's common sense. Um, it's a common sense approach to the problems that we're facing on the ground. And and in addition to that, you know, a lot of folks here in Washington State have lost trust in politicians and the government. And, and that is, you know, it's meant to serve. Um, and so that's my focus. I mean, I've had to use common sense. I had to build bridges when my husband's life was on the line. I, I not only was committed to that recovery, then I went and took on the VA took on reform. So I have a track record of building coalitions, bringing people together um, to to find solutions that actually deliver results. Um, we were able to work, you know, with, with the Trump administration and the VA to enact real meaningful reforms that directly help the veterans. That's what I, my approach is. That's what I look forward to doing. You know, Patty Murray is trying to scare voters here in Washington State. I'm here to serve. She, show, she shows a picture of me and Trump but I remind the voters, she doesn't show you this one. She doesn't show you the picture of me and her because that's who I am. I will work with anyone to deliver results. And, and in fact, here in Washington State, I think it's important to note that crime, um, as far as the public safety, uh, you know, has had a public safety effect. And not only yeah, that, but that was my next question. Effect. Yeah, crime yeah, was my next yeah. question. Yeah, we elected a Republican city attorney in November in Seattle. And then, uh, so, and I think it's important to know also in 2020, we elected a Republican Secretary of State statewide here in Washington State. That's sooner than Colorado or Nevada. So we're an interesting state. Candidate matters here. And um, I'm very excited, you know, to be out. I've been in all 39 counties. I've listened to voters. And we are releasing our agenda for recovery and reform. And it's, it's you know, resonating across the state. Is there a plan in place for debate. So we were talking about this earlier. Some Democrats are refusing to debate their opponents. Have you gotten a confirmation, an agreement to to debate the incumbent here? And, and if you get that opportunity, whether it's once or twice or three times, what do you plan to challenge her on? Because I feel like there's, you know, there's a pretty big buffet of options there. What do you want to focus yeah. on? Yes. So um, I will say I have accepted um, four debates, um, and she has yet to accept um, any of the debates. And actually, just last week, um, I had to hold the press here accountable that Everett Herald editorial board absolutely caved to the demands of Patty Murray, who she so she not only refuses to accept a debate with me, but she won't even participate in a joint interview. I had agreed it was supposed to be in person. Then I agreed oh, to wow. do it on Zoom. I agreed to do it on Zoom and she negotiated it to a separate interview. So I called them out. Well, and let me just say this, Tiffany Smiley, from across the country, I hope you get all four of those debates. I would love to listen to you go head-to-head with Patty Murray. I've watched her. I'm listening to you. I think that would go quite well. Tiffany Smiley, running for Senate in Washington State. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Tiffany. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. And as we mentioned a couple times late last week, yesterday, Sunday, was the 21st anniversary of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks in New York City and Washington, D.C. 
course, in Pennsylvania as well. An attack that killed nearly 3,000 innocent people. And I've told my story about September 11th on the air before growing up in the New York area. It was and remains the worst day of my life so far. Hope that there aren't going to be worse days, but it was awful. And every September 11th, I do a lot of thinking about it. And yesterday was no exception. You also see a bunch of posts from politicians, from brands, from teams and organizations about September 11th and commemorating that loss. It was a tragedy. It was also an atrocity. I think sometimes you kind of glide past something and you smooth it over. Oh, what a tragedy. It was that, but it was an outrageous, murderous attack by terrorists deliberately. And the people who came after us and hit us that day, many of them, and their acolytes and their followers would like to do the exact same thing again and will if they have the opportunity, which is why vigilance remains crucial, why our intelligence agencies are vital, even though sometimes they come under fire and criticism, sometimes deserved. There are people working around the clock to keep us safe, not just in the IC, but also in the military, of course. And a day like September 11th just reminds you of that. I think that that's a healthy thing. But among the flurry of public statements were a few controversial ones, including a screw-up from the office of Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, a Democrat from Washington State, who chairs the Progressive Caucus, so she's way out there on the left. And she put out a statement on Twitter later deleted, that was honoring the victims of 9-11. It stayed up for much of the day before it came down because it entailed a death toll from the attack that included the perpetrators of the attack, the terrorists. Jayapal and her team took the post down eventually. It said, while it was live, quote, Today we remember the 2,996 people who were killed on 9-11 and all those who lost their lives while serving our country in the forever wars that followed. So a little bit of a political dig there at the end. But the 2,996 number includes 19 terrorists, the hijackers. Indeed, and in fact, there were 2,977 victims who were murdered on September 11, 2001. We do not mourn the 19 terrorists who went on this suicide mission and bring as many people down with them as possible. And horrifyingly, they were very successful, although not as successful as they might have been, absent some real heroics on United Flight 93 that day. Now, lest this be framed as a partisan thing, A similar mistake, actually almost the exact same mistake, was made by Republican leader Kevin McCarthy and his staff, where they used that inflated number, sort of conflating it with the number of victims. And I think what happened here, the theory of the case, is if you just do a very quick Google search on how many people died on September 11th, you get a Wikipedia preview 
and that preview has the bigger number. Now, if you click on the link, it delineates between victims and terrorists. And if you look at other sources, the correct number is used. But my guess, I think it's an informed guess, is that inside the operation in these congressional offices, they're like, we've got to do a commemoration on 9-11. Let's put something out. Let's remember the victims. And some intern or junior staffer did the most cursory, quickest search imaginable, saw a number, and just put it out there which is maybe not the optimal way to go about anything like this, especially when you're talking about a death toll, a huge death toll in a traumatic national disaster and a terrorist attack. I mean, just you want to cross your teeth, dot your eyes, maybe be a little bit more conscientious than just a preview on a Wikipedia page. And I think I'm sure there have been some folks who've gotten a talking to. Mistakes are made. We're all human. I'm not, like, you know, going through the roof on this. I will just point out, as others have, that Congresswoman Jayapal, her office and her staff made the exact same mistake last year in their 2021 post using the bigger number that included the terrorists for public consumption. And now that they've done it twice in a row, that becomes, I think, more indefensible. Like maybe someone in Jayapal's office, just some friendly advice, in case anyone over there happens to ever listen to this show, make a Google Calendar alert for yourself for September 10th, 2023. And just write in big red letters, don't use the wrong death toll tomorrow. Now that it's happened in consecutive years that's embarrassing it's bad enough to blow it once again i think maybe you cut some people some slack to do it back to back is pretty rough we are up on a break we're going to take it when we return there was an interesting panel conversation on meet the press on nbc yesterday got a lot of attention on social media it involves the issue of abortion who's allowed to talk about it the epithet or the allegation of mansplaining came to the fore i would like to break it down and take some time doing so because there's a whole series of points to be made and i will endeavor to make them as soon as we come back on the guy benson show Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show, it is the Guy Benson Show. We'll be in Los Angeles, California the next couple of days starting tomorrow. So looking forward to being out there on the left coast, at least for a little while. Meanwhile, here in the Washington, D.C. area, on Meet the Press yesterday, there was not just the Kamala Harris interview that we talked about earlier, There was the panel discussion, which is very typical on these Sunday shows, where they have the roundtable and people talk about the news of the day, the politics of the day. And there was an exchange that got a fair amount of attention. And I wrote about it today at townhall.com, as a matter of fact, at the tip sheet. You can just look that up if you're interested in reading about it. I want to talk about it here. So on the panel, or at least the people that you're going to hear from here in these sound bites, are the host of the show, Chuck Todd. Then you have Yamish Alsendor, 
who is a progressive activist. Now, she's technically a journalist with a press credential, so she was there in that role as a journalist. But I think when that particular individual weighs in on anything, whether it's on television or on social media, it's important to understand that her actual role is that of a progressive activist. She is one of the more brazen examples of media personalities and journalists who are celebrated for their supposed journalism, but what they do consistently is put their thumb on the scale for one side. And it's kind of both thumbs on the scale for one side when it comes to Yamish. Then there's also Claire McCaskill. She's on the panel as well, former senator from Missouri. She lost her reelection bid in 2018 after she, that time around, couldn't handpick her Republican opponent. She was able to do that back in 2012 with Todd Akin, and she beat him, even in a red state. I think there might be some lessons to be learned about not allowing Democrats to handpick their preferred opponents, as we are seeing them meddling and playing heavily on that front all across the country this year. I've made that point. Something to maybe think about, for example, as we've been saying in New Hampshire tomorrow in the primaries, when the Democrats telegraph to you very clearly who they want to face, maybe it's not the best idea to give them exactly what they want. That's what Claire McCaskill got in 2012 in her Senate race, and she won. That's not what she was able to pull off in 2018. Josh Hawley ran against her and beat her. So the question on the table was about abortion politics. We know where most in the media stand on that issue. I would say 95% of the elite press corps is somewhere in the range of pro-choice to pro-abortion. There are not many pro-lifers in newsrooms or on the sets of these types of shows. So that was the topic that was raised by Chuck Todd. Matt Gorman is a Republican operative and strategist who was representing the conservative side on the panel, the only one. And so there was a bit of a fight over the question of abortion, and then social media picked it up, and there was a huge pile on. Let's just listen together to how it sounded, starting in Cut 21, starting with Gorman speaking to the issue. I don't think it's an issue in the 2020 at all. I mean, I talk to Republicans every day who see these internal polls. It is not in the top four of issues. Even look at your poll last month. It was 8%. It was under climate change. Don't you think democracy, though, is is sharing some of those? That the so those who are concerned about the abortion decision maybe are in the democracy category. I, I don't know how the, the the question was phrased, but I think with abortion and threats to democracy, we tend to c- connote it with okay, it's democratic base angry at Trump mm-hmm. or it's pro-choice angry at the decision. Not necessarily the case. That could be a single-issue voter on abortion who's so thankful, you know, pro-life, or folks in the Republican base being Biden's on the way to socialism. Okay, so what Gorman does there, especially in the first part of his answer. He cites polling. He cites internal polling out in the field in Republican campaigns. And he also, I think, cleverly points out NBC's own poll from last month, where he's citing NBC polling on NBC News to buttress the point he's making, which is to say that the abortion issue is being overblown in the media as a factor in the midterm elections. Now, I will say that I'm not sure I completely agree with his analysis when he says he doesn't think it's an issue at all. I think it is one. I think certainly at the margins, it can matter. 
depending on the state, depending on the district, if you get a bunch of people who are otherwise dyspeptic, not super engaged in this cycle, then all of a sudden they see Dobbs happen at the Supreme Court. They're told by a bunch of people that abortion is going to become illegal. They might get fired up and mobilize. And I think for Republicans to let that issue just sit out there for Democrats to flog without addressing it and responding is a huge mistake because the Democrats have massive vulnerabilities on their abortion extremism. There are a couple really strong counterpoints to make. Also, if you let the Democrats define this as Dobbs equals abortion ban, it's not true, but that's what a lot of people believe. And the polling shows that if that's the way it's framed, it'll be an advantage for the Democrats. If there's a more honest framing, which is tough to get through, you know, and break through if you're a Republican, especially with the media environment that we talked about, then the Democrats would be advantaged. And then, of course, just the issue of enthusiasm, intensity, turnout. Could some of those college-educated suburban women, for example, who've been drifting back toward the Republicans after their leftward lurch under Trump, we've seen them moving back in 2021 and 2022, could abortion at least complicate their thinking again and maybe yank them back toward the Democrats or make them think twice? These are things that I think are realistic concerns for Republicans. But Matt Gorman, the Republican on the panel, simply makes a statement of fact about what polling is showing and what specifically the network that airs Meet the Press, what their polling showed, which is it's not a top four issue. In fact, it's polling at 8%. Those 8% can matter. It's not all, obviously, people on one side of the issue or the other. But maybe it's also possible, based on the data that he's citing, that the media and progressive activists are overemphasizing abortion because they are projecting their own biases, their own priorities, their own passions onto the electorate more broadly, sort of wish casting. Now, you can agree or disagree with that, but Gorman is at least pointing to actual data to underscore the point that he's making. Now, here come the rebuttals on the panel from the Democrat, Yamish Alcindor, and then the other Democrat, Claire McCaskill, one of whom was elected, one of whom says she's a journalist. In Cut 22, here's their response to what Gorman said. Listen. I can just say that as someone who's been out on the campaign trail, even if you ask a a voter right now about health care or about the state of democracy, abortion comes up 90 percent of the time. And I think that to say it's not an issue, I think is very interesting to to hear, because just as someone who's out there reporting, abortion is absolutely an issue, along with inflation, along with the the, the issues. I hope Matt Matt keeps saying that everywhere he goes, that abortion really isn't an issue in this election. I think it is exactly what infuriates women when they hear that they, they may, when you're asking a poll what's the most important issue you may not be comfortable saying abortion right. but if you say to a woman we are now in your state like they are in my state forcing incest victims to give birth when you are having doctors having to make life and death decisions around whether they go to prison or whether they take care of their patient yeah. that is motivating voters okay so There's the response from the abortion rights activists on the panel. And I'll address the broader question a little bit further here in a second. I do want to say for Republicans, 
if you're going to fight these important battles and you want to advance the ball on the issue of life, as I do, as a pro-life person, I view it as a human rights issue, I think you have to pick your battles smartly. I think there's a reason why Democrats and leftists often talk about ectopic pregnancies, which I think is a, a totally misleading thing, or very rare situations such as pregnancies from rape or incest. They focus on those types of scenarios because they don't really believe deep down that the public is with them on elective abortion on demand, especially later in pregnancy. That's what their actual position is, and it's extremely radical. They focus instead on very unpopular things that Republicans are doing certain places to try to frame up the issue that way. I understand why they're doing it politically. I think Republicans need to think and conservatives need to think very hard about what talking points to enable for the left. And then, of course, to consider and execute counterpoints, counter messaging on what Republicans actually believe and what they actually stand for, what they're actually pushing for, compared to what the Democrats, almost every single one of them, for example, in Congress have voted for, which is abortion on demand for any reason through birth paid for by tax dollars. That's the Democratic position on abortion. So. There was a lot of response to this whole exchange that we just played for you on social media. Unsurprisingly, a lot of people coming in saying, oh, here's this dude mansplaining what is or is not an issue. Here's just a man telling the women what they ought to care about and telling them what they don't really care about. And I think a lot of that just misses the point. It's the perfect little stupid spun up social media tempest. Matt Gorman was not telling women what they're supposed to believe and what is or is not a big issue in the election. He's simply pointing to statistical data that indicates that maybe the people who feel extremely strongly in the pro-abortion side of things aren't broadly representative of the entire country when they are convinced that this is a huge, massive, national, across-the-board game-changer for the Democrats heading into November. He was the one who actually pointed to data. Alcindor said, well, I'm out there on the campaign trail, and I hear abortion coming up 90% of the time. Well, which voters is she talking to? Which candidates is she covering? There are absolutely certain Democratic campaigns that are leaning heavily into the issue. And because that's where she stands on the issue, she might be inclined to go cover those types of people with the types of supporters who tend to agree with her. So Gorman is talking about national scientific polling. Alcindor is talking about her own anecdotes. Of course there's room for anecdotes in political analysis. But between those two, if you're trying to actually quantify the effect of any particular issue or the potency of an issue, I would rather go with data than what one leftist reporter is hearing. And I see a lot of people who are detractors of Yamiche Alcindor noting that she has a long history of telling little anecdotes that curiously often align with her own preferences and positions. That she's saying, oh, well, here's what I'm hearing from voters, and the voters sound very much like her. 
Funny, isn't it? Meanwhile, what to make of the critiques of Matt Gorman for being a man? Mansplaining to the women of America what they care about or not. That's the knock on him here. I want to address that, and I'll do so right after this break on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back on The Guy Benson Show discussing what happened yesterday on Meet the Press, not the vice president's interview, which we talked about earlier, but this whole back and forth on abortion. What I want to say about the whole mansplaining attack on Matt Gorman and just setting him aside, this is something that we hear all the time, whether it's Matt Gorman or anyone else like me, right? If you are a pro-life man, you were told to shut up. You were told that your opinion doesn't matter. Only women have valid opinions on abortion. Now there's an asterisk, which is if you're a pro-choice or pro-abortion man, that's fine. You're an ally. That's good. Please, we will hear from you. Please vote. And if you're a pro-life woman, then you're really this weird knuckle-dragging, rosary-clutching outlier, and you're kind of betraying womanhood in general. So that doesn't really count either. What they mean is agree with them or your position doesn't count and shouldn't matter. And you should just kind of pipe down. But they try to frame it selectively through the prism of sex and gender as a means of short-circuiting debate. Like if I'm making a very good point that tens of millions of pro-life women agree with, because it's coming out of my mouth, given my chromosomes and my genitalia, it doesn't really qualify as something anyone should pay attention to. And that's what they're doing here to Matt Gorman. It's not Matt's fault that the only person who's remotely pro-life on the panel is a dude, right? That was a decision made by the NBC bookers. The rest of the panel were women who were left-leaning. That's not Matt Gorman's fault. The fact that pro-life women are completely unrepresented on this particular panel, and I would say broadly speaking in news media, is not the fault of the men who are then put in a position to make an argument that, again, tens of millions of women who aren't on that panel happen to agree with. And the polling shows over and over again that the large majority of American women support substantial restrictions on abortion, something that you never hear out there in the media because they don't want to address that. So rather than going with the stupid paint-by-numbers identity argument like, oh, the person speaking these words is of that sex, and so we'll say he is disrespecting women, and this is just some chauvinist pig out there telling women what to think. Just pretend, close your eyes and pretend, that it's a pro-life woman making the exact same points. How do you attack her? Probably some other way, but you're still not going to accept the point. You're still not going to listen to the argument. You'll find some other way to try to disqualify it. I don't think that that's a good way to have a rational conversation. Some people view abortion through the lens of women's rights. Some people view it through the lens of human rights. I understand why people would see it both ways, but everyone is entitled to have an opinion. And if you have a well-thought-out opinion, or not, you're welcome to raise it. Let's 
discuss those things on the merits rather than saying this category of people is disqualified from having a position. And also, by the way, a lot of the progressives and leftists who like to sort of dismiss anything that a man has to say on abortion, unless that man happens to agree with them, it's the same people in a lot of cases who will confidently assert out there on social media with the little hand clap emojis that men can also have abortions. That's the new weird sort of, you know, trans intersection here into the issue itself. So make up your mind. Can men have abortions and therefore we can have opinions on abortion? Or is it a women's thing and men should shut up? They just sort of toggle back and forth depending on the political expediency of the moment. So I just thought it was an interesting back and forth on NBC. A number of different points to be raised. A couple things to put out there into the universe in terms of the actual underlying issue from my perspective. And then again, one of my bugaboos, one of my hobby horses is coming back to this end of discussion silencing effort on this issue and others that you see often from the left. And it was on full display based on this little skirmish on Meet the Press this weekend. Got a break. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show is straight ahead. Howie Kurtz, upcoming. Stay with us. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show on this Monday, kicking off a new week. Thank you very much for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday, 5 to 6, our final hour is the happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Crisp, delicious, refreshing. Even as we move into fall, we do recommend it year-round, as a matter of fact. 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com to find out where it's sold near you. And that list has grown dramatically, really just in the last year plus, and really the last few months in a number of places. TheLongDrink.com. Our website here at the show, GuyBensonShow.com. We tell you about it every day. Lots of content related to the program there. Podcast on demand for free seven days a week with bonus Benson on the weekends. So please do check that out. You can subscribe. All no charge to you. Maybe leave us a a review if you'd like, preferably a good one. GuyBensonShow.com, your one-stop shop for all of that. Joining us now is Howie Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz. Every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, he also is host of the podcast Media Buzz Meter. You can follow him on Twitter at Howard Kurtz. Howie, great to have you back here. Welcome. Great to be back. All right, let's start with coverage of the death of the Queen of England. We here on the program did almost three full hours on Thursday, the day that she died. We did a fair amount of coverage on Friday as well. Little bits and pieces here, I'd imagine, over the course of the week upcoming. I know the funeral is still off, I think more than a week away at this point. That preamble leads to the overall question Big news event, massive figure on the world stage, on the throne for 70 years. I get all of that. I think that she deserves a lot of credit and a lot of examination of her life and reflection on her legacy and all of that. 
How much media coverage in your mind makes sense, especially here in the United States? Because I've heard from some friends who think that maybe this is going a little over the top. Other people apparently cannot get enough of it. I wonder where you come down on that spectrum. Well, I was a part of the coverage yesterday for a good 40 minutes. Uh, Those are not decisions that I make, but I tried to elevate it and talk, uh, ask some probing questions about the cream's popularity, about the very question that you just asked, because it does seem over the top for me here in the former colonies. Now, I think I've become to understand, you know, what a beloved figure she was, and particularly among women, and how so many people, including uh, Americans, began, uh, not began, but felt an emotional connection to her uh, because she was on the throne for 70 years. I mean, it's almost unimaginable. However, I, you know, if I ruled the world, maybe half of the time uh, you would cover the queen and half of the time you would cover other news stories. But basically, day after day after day, except at nighttime when Britain is basically asleep, it's been wall to wall, not allowing any other news stories to be covered. And I think that's too much. But I also think uh, that while we are giving her her due, and I, I'm not a fan of the monarchy, but she's always managed for various reasons to float above that, in part yep. by being remote and so forth. Um, I, I, I think that uh, it's because it rates. The ratings must be good. That was my next question. This 24 <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, like people are watching, people are clicking, people are listening. Yeah. I got a lot of like feedback. I have to tell you, Howie, we did a lot of tributes to the Queen and you know coverage of her death and sound bites of her through the years and people telling stories about her. And I was more than happy to do it, especially the day and the day after. It's this monumental figure in you know, over the last century of human existence, arguably the most famous woman on earth, and she passes away. And you know, I, I understand it and hearing in emails and direct messages from listeners a lot of response to our coverage of her death. And so I'm thinking, okay, obviously there's a strong appetite for this. And ultimately, you know, sometimes decisions are made. It's like, okay, are people interested? And if the answer is yes, very interested, then decisions are made accordingly, right? That's also part of our business, underscore the word business. Well, you know, guys, she was the most famous person on earth about whom we knew very little because she kept her private life so private. And, you know, she was just miles above all of the scandals, you know, going back to uh, Charles and Camilla and Diana and Fergie and now Harry and Meghan. But it, I mean, a lot of it is just filling airtime by people saying the same things over and over again. So, for example, I had a whole show planned, but because the journey of her casket from uh, Balmoral in uh, Scotland, where she lived, uh, to the Holyrood uh, house uh, where she was live and stayed for a day. Um, we need the feeling at Fox was we needed to cover it. So I was able to get a couple of segments on uh, having to do with politics and news of the day. And, you know, you can't time these things exactly. But I sure. do think that there, when there's a, this tsunami of interest, and we can debate whether it's warranted or not, um, it's, it's hard for it's a reality. to say no, but I do think it's gone a little too far. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'll be kind of interested to see how the new king is received in some of these speeches he's giving in between her death and the funeral. I think the funeral itself is probably something that I will at least pay some attention to. But it sounds overall, Howie, like you and I are mostly on the same page 
on this particular question. I do think it's interesting. And you were talking about your experience on Media Buzz. I was talking about our experience here. It is by no means just a Fox thing. This is media across the board and across the world, which is why I think it's sort of a fascinating thing to ask you about because this is your beat. Meanwhile, Howie, I want to ask you about an interesting thing that happened over at CNN in the last couple of weeks. And I I don't want to get into any individual personality or media figure, but the show Reliable Sources, which is Sunday morning show, competitor against Media Buzz, and your former show, you hosted it, you anchored Reliable Sources for years at CNN. The network under the new leadership has canceled the show. And the host of it has now left the network. Setting aside some of the internal drama over there at the competition, I just wonder how you feel about that show going away, given your tie to it, your connection to it for those many years. And does the fact that Reliable Sources is now off the air, does that change in any way your thought process when you are forming and building media buzz because now it's kind of like the only game in town for that type of a show, which I think serves actually a pretty important role in the current media environment. I just had to ask you about it, given your link back to that program. Right. I mean, reliable sources was on the air for 30 years for 22 of those years. I was involved with it 15 of those years. I anchored the show. It had pretty good reputation when I left to come to Fox because I do the same thing that I do now, which is it's all about fairness. I mean, I'm seen as a bit of a dinosaur by a lot of people because everybody in this polarized environment wants you to pick a side, pick a side. I don't pick a side. I'm a journalist, and that pisses off both sides, and that's okay. I can live with it. It does leave me as the only media show on national television. So, you know, competitively speaking, it's a win for me and media buzz, but I did, I must confess I had conflicting feelings because I had spent so many years trying to build up that franchise. And um, I know a lot of, there's been a lot of left-leaning media coverage of this, like, oh my God, CNN, they're, uh, they're afraid to speak truth to power and the governor, John <laughs> Howard. And like, basically I had nothing to do with it, right? The new boss at CNN, Chris Lick decided that he wants to try to bring the network back to its roots. When I worked there, at least was attempting to be a down-the-middle, you know, kind of straight reporter's network. Um, And so he clearly orchestrated the demise of reliable sources, the firing of White House correspondent uh, John Howard, who's been openly, shamelessly anti-Trump and pro-Biden for years now, uh, because he wanted to send a message to his troops. So and instead, the reaction in the mostly left-leaning media has been, oh, CNN's a bunch of cowards. Here's the thing. I think what Licht is doing is smart because, you know, he tried to be another MSNBC. We already had an MSNBC. And it worked in terms of a short-term sugar fix because, you know, when Donald Trump was in office, everybody's ratings went up, including CNN's. But as I warned at the time, uh, you can only do that for so long, and then Trump leaves, and he hasn't really left, and then we're still talking about him all the time. Uh, but I think it is hard for him to undo the damage of the last six years because people are going to say, yeah, CNN, uh, I, don't, I don't trust those people because they became part of the anti-Trump resistance. Well, and yeah, it wasn't just like a little bit of dabbling or a dalliance for a few months. It was a committed strategy for years to the point that you just made, and – I think getting rid of some of the most, 
I would say brazenly and aggressively biased people is a good start. I would not be surprised if there's a few other folks coming down the pike who are going to be on the chopping block there, and there'll probably be all sorts of histrionics about that when that comes out. I have no special knowledge on that. It's just sort of a guess on my part. But it's an attempted course correction. I'm not sure how I feel about the axing of reliable sources completely. Uh, I don't necessarily disagree with the decision to change the person running that show. I don't think it was living up to what it used to be. They got rid of it completely. As you said, in a competitive environment, it's a win for you and a win for us at Fox because it's the last man standing. That's good. And you put on a very good show and you put a lot of work into it every single week. But there also is something to be said just in general about competition and, you know, making everyone, you know, stronger. That's at least the theory behind it. I wonder if you think even an admission against interest, is there a place for that type of thoughtful media criticism in the landscape right now that doesn't exist, especially in a moment where trust in the press is so low and people have such, I think you could just look at the numbers, a dismal view overall of journalism and journalists. It seems like maybe uh, that type of programming could thrive right now and, and might be needed at the moment. And I wonder what you make of that. Well, the answer is yes, you know, it's, uh, but there's a reason that I'm the only one, which is that in these other places like MSNBC has never had a media show, never wanted a media show, because if you have a media program, inevitably you have to criticize yourself, your network, when they make mistakes, screw-ups, go too far, conspiracy theories get too uh, partisan and so forth. And there are a lot of places that don't want that. And I think the reason that Chris Lick didn't want to do, you know, kind of reinvent a media show is he figured, well, inevitably they're going to get into the business of taking up Fox and he doesn't want to, he doesn't seem to like the inter-network partisan warfare, so better just to put on some kind of political show and maybe he'll do a a better number. But it is revealing that... um, the rationale for his decision wasn't looked at. Instead, the immediate assumption by people who are very left-leaning or extremely left-leaning right. is, uh, oh, no, no, the suits uh, are caving, they're running away, which really means they uh, don't hate Donald Trump and yeah, want yeah, right. to no. uh, support him at all, you know, want to... Uh, yeah, the, 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 clapping, the clapping seals are mad that someone who feeds them the fish every week that they like is now going away. I mean, that's kind of what's happening here. They're like, oh, well, these are people that we like. There's something nefarious afoot. CNN's becoming this right-wing outfit. This, and I think a lot of that is uh, hilarious and, and massively overblown, and there's a lot of rebuilding that needs to be done over there in terms of trust, as you mentioned a moment ago. Finally, Howie, I want to ask you about this. Our colleague Shannon Bream debuted on Fox News Sunday yesterday on 9-11. Her first show as the permanent anchor. We had her on on Friday, and I'm very excited for her. She's one of my favorite people in the building. I also asked her this, and I thought it was a fair question. I asked her, is she too nice to do the job? the way it needs to be done, because she is maybe the nicest person I've ever met. And sometimes to get politicians in an uncomfortable place and to corner them, you kind of have to be a little more sharp-elbowed than Shannon typically is. And I thought she gave a great answer to that. I am very excited for her tenure at FNS, one of the long-running and, I think, prestigious journalism shows in our Fox family. And I would be remiss if I did not get your take on it before I let you go. 
Right. Well, I mean, there's nobody at Fox who doesn't love Shannon Bream. And I interviewed her a week ago, and she talked about getting fired from her first job and being told that, uh, you know, she would never make it in this business. So, yeah. you know, she's worked <laughs> really hard. She's worked on a variety of shows. She launched a late-night show uh, at Fox News, never had one before. Um, but at the same time, everyone's got their own style. Look, Shannon Bream is not Chris Wallace, who's one of the just greatest interviewers on the planet, but she doesn't want to be she has to bring her own style to it and she talked about disarming people by getting to them personally and therefore you know they can get tough but fair questions i think it's a fair question uh you know you can get a lot i i don't tend to browbeat or you know ask gotcha questions you can get a lot out of uh, politicians who basically want to stick to their talking points that's what we talked about um by being persistent by bringing up facts uh without you know, are you telling me that you blah 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 right Right. You know, also, they have a terrific staff there, which will say, well, you know, Zender in 1991, you voted this way. So I think she's going to do very, very well. I think it's I a agree. first face for Sunday morning. Yep, totally agree with that. And we wish her the very best. And the first show was great. And they're off to the races. Howie Kurtz is on also on Sundays, Fox News Channel, 11 a.m. Eastern, Media Buzz. He anchors that show. And given... The changing landscape out there. There's some added significance that we talked about here. Howie, always appreciate your time. Looking forward to next time and being back on your air soon as well. Thanks so much, Guy. It's Howie Kurtz on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on The Guy Benson Show. I had to laugh at this story. New York Post covering the excuses being made by the mayor of New Orleans for some very profligate expenses that she has incurred and has charged taxpayers for. Here's the story from the New York Post. The Democratic mayor of New Orleans refusing to reimburse the almost $30,000 of taxpayer money she has spent upgrading flights to first or business class despite city policy. After she insisted it was for her safety as a black woman, Mayor Latoya Cantrell told reporters last week she won't fork over the fees that she charged for the upgraded tickets, including an $18,000 first-class trip to France over the summer. $18,000? I think we need to put this mayor in touch with the points guy. She needs some help here. Since January of last year, Cantrell has charged the city... $29,000 to travel first or business class instead of coach. And this flies in the face of the city's travel policy, which requires New Orleans municipal employees to select the cheapest flights available or pay back the difference. She has not done that. And the way she's defending this is by making it an issue about identity, racial and like a woman thing. She said, as all women know, our health and safety are often disregarded and we are left to navigate alone. As the mother of a young child whom I live for, I'm going to protect myself by any reasonable means in order to ensure that I am there to see her grow into the strong woman I am raising her to be. Anyone who wants to question how I protect myself just doesn't understand the world black women walk in. I fail to understand how any of that has to do with Wanting to be in first class, we all want to be in first class, but charging taxpayers for it? What's for her safety as a black woman, she has to have a bigger seat and some free champagne on her way to France? I know sometimes it's just like this muscle memory, knee-jerk response to go identity and woke when you're challenged on anything. 
but sometimes it just makes you look even more ridiculous. And clearly she has no better defense, because this is the well she's going to. <laughs> Embarrassing. The Guy Benson Show returns after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, it is the happy hour. Thanks for tuning in. Earlier on the program today, in our first hour, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, a Republican, joined us once again, talking New Hampshire politics. Big day in that state tomorrow, plus a few national issues as well. Here's a taste of my conversation with the New Hampshire Governor. Let's talk about your endorsement, uh, why you decided to go with your preferred candidate, and what you think's at stake. Sure, sure. So I, I endorse Chuck Morse. Uh, it, it, in New Hampshire, we're very results-driven, right? So uh, Chuck was the is, the is the current president of the Senate. He's the one that worked with me directly to putting all these new mental health programs in place, for example, or rebuilding, completely rebuilding our opioid uh, treatment and recovery system, which we now call the Doorway, which frankly is getting better results than almost anywhere in the country, and we're very proud of that. But you got to be able to stand up and say, we did this, we did that, we brought ideas to the table. We implemented funding here. We're building it. You know, he helped me buy the new mental health hospital for children. He, he wants to move the ball forward as opposed to, I'm fighting for this. I'm trying to do that. Like, that's all you hear from these candidates now. It's like, it's nauseating. How about actually getting a record of, of success? And I think that's what folks are going to want in November. He's also clearly the candidate that is most likely to beat Maggie Hassan in November. And I think that's a very winnable race. So um, look, at the end of the day, nothing matters if you don't win in November, right? You can't govern if you don't win, so you need to vote for candidates that have the best chance of winning, that have that record of, of uh, success, and he has it. So I'm behind him 110 percent. I think he's going to do very well tomorrow. Well, I mean, it does appear that the Democrats are making quite clear who they want to run against, and it's not your guy. It's the other guy, right? They're spending money meddling again. We've seen this all across the country, spending millions of dollars trying to come into a Republican primary and boost someone that they think would be weaker or easier to beat. You know, of course, the irony is the president and the Democrats are out there calling those types of candidates fundamental threats to the country and then spending millions to boost them, which seems um, cynical at the very least. But I just generally feel that when the Democrats are trying to tell us who they want to run against collectively, perhaps as conservatives, we shouldn't give them precisely what they're asking for. It's just like a thought that I have. Oh, yeah, you think? I mean, look, I, I don't know where you are. I think this whole idea that Democrats or even can play in Republican primaries or Republicans could play in Democrat primaries, I think that's a total nonsense. I think they need to ban that process one way or the other. Um, and can you imagine being – imagine if you're a Democrat donor, just for a second, a lot of suspension of, of reality right there, but you're a Democrat donor knowing that your money is funding these extreme right candidates because you know the other side of that coin is it what, what you see in Pennsylvania uh, or some of these uh, Illinois, Arizona, uh, you might just get what you asked for, right? And to, to the Democrats' uh, surprise. So it's a very bizarre tactic. There's millions being spent there. Uh, and yeah, it is a telltale sign when the Democrats are trying to get someone elected, probably not the person we should be electing in our primaries. Do you have any thoughts in terms of the House races? Because I know that potentially, especially in a wave year, they could both be winnable. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I made sure that both of our House seats are winnable. We've got very good candidates on both sides. I, I, I've endorsed um, 
uh, uh, Hansel over in CD2. First time, I think, in uh, like a decade that that is now a toss-up race, our CD2 race. That was formerly a Democrat firm, solid Democrat seat is no longer. It's very winnable. And then, of course, our CD1, which is also very winnable, also a toss-up race. There's five candidates going at it in a primary tomorrow, and we'll see what happens there. But, again, you, you got to elect people uh, that can win in November. At the, you know, We can have all of our passions and all of our principles, and I'm not saying throw your principles aside, but remember, we can if you don't elect someone that is electable uh, to the general population, that galvanizes independence, that gets people excited, that stays positive, that knows how to you know, run a good ground game campaign and raise money and do all those things that you have to do to get over the, over the finish line. If you're not getting over the finish line, then we're just going to be going, oh, shucks, what happened? Well, we elected the wrong person in the primary. That happens all the time. Let's not be that example. Uh, let's lead by example instead and, and really put for, folks forward that can drive home and win all three seats for us. And you're pushing, as we mentioned, Chuck Morris for U.S. Senate. That race is tomorrow. You said part of his background and part of what informed your decision is he's the Senate president. And so he's got some achievements under his belt. Also, he's not a first-time candidate for public office. My full interview with Chris Sununu, GOP governor in New Hampshire, available online, GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, the entire show, for free, on demand, Every day, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch producer Christine has some updates on her sober September effort. How are those going? Plus, we'll get an update on her newfound passion for NFL football, which came out of nowhere. Is she still a fan after the games yesterday? We'll find out next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day on demand. Heading to the airport shortly, flying out to the West Coast and Los Angeles. We'll be doing the show from there for the next couple of days. A lot of travel here between now and the election. Meantime, I saw this story about Queen Elizabeth II, and I had heard about this before I'd forgotten about it, because on, was it Friday? It might have been Thursday. The days are sort of blurring together here. But we decided to craft some cocktails in honor of Her Majesty after she had died. I guess her favorite cocktail was a gin and Dubonnet, if I'm saying that correctly. And so we prepared that at the house for some of our guests. I mentioned that last week. And we raised a glass to her. And in the process of doing that research to find the ingredients and how the cocktail is made and all of that, I ran across the story about how the queen famously drank quite a lot. She would drink four to five servings of alcohol, four to five drinks a day, including cocktails and champagne. And the first cocktail would start before lunch. I mean, that is quite a clip, I have to say. But can you really argue with it? You know, she's got that whole family and all that drama to deal with. So she's like, all right, let's, uh, let's get this cocktail rolling here, please. Just like I can imagine just ringing a little bell and in comes the cocktail. It's been prepared already, right on cue. And she lived to 96. 
So I'm not saying that there's a direct causal relationship here, but I think some people might see it that way. Right? Many people are saying just uh, five cocktails a day keeps the doctor away. (laughs) I'm not necessarily endorsing that, but I think someone whose ears have perked up a little bit is producer Christine. Because, as we know, producer Christine enjoys her, uh, her booze. She sometimes charmingly refers to it as the hooch. We sometimes call it mama's juice, although that's usually on the wine side of things. Christine, number one, are you inspired by this aspect of the Queen's legacy? And number two, how is your sober September going? I'll start with number one. Uh, of course I'm inspired by this. I'm I'm really with like a bell of my own. And every time I hit ding, I get a Cosmo. That sounds nice. Who would come running with that, Dan? Well, if, if I'm here, yes, Dan. Or if I'm home, obviously, Bobby. I mean, Megan, she's old enough, right? I can imagine. Well, she's been serving you alcohol, your young daughter, for years, right? You trained her. It's like one of the first things. She was probably still in diapers when she realized, you know, it's like, oh, I got to bring this pink drink to mama i can imagine dan being in like the edit bay doing actual work for the show and there goes the bell again he just sighs uh, and rolls his eyes and like all right i'll be again. right back um okay so you're you're loving this detail of the queen's life and then please do answer part two of the question which is you were getting pretty proud of yourself you you do this you get up on this high horse about your uh your periods of abstinence from drinking and it was after labor day weekend and you announced to the audience and to us that you were going to do sober september and is that still underway i i have to say i'm pretty proud of myself for september um it's been modified the program (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's been been modified a little bit it's not total sober september Mm. bobby and i have changed it to um let's not have a bender in september and we are no bender september we're nailing it we really are so how many drinks are you allowed to have per day under this rule what counts as a bender so so four to five drinks a day like the queen (laughs) would that qualify no so i mean the rules can change you know how it goes of course for right now um there's no alcohol during the week. And, you know, if we have a drink, uh, oh, you know what? We actually broke that. We had said Saturday, like, we just won't have alcohol in the house. So if, like, we go out to, like, a nice dinner, you know, we went to a steak dinner on Saturday. How was I not going to have a cocktail? And then how was I not going to have a glass of red wine or two with dinner? And how was I not going to have an espresso martini with my creme brulee? You understand my issue here, right? Well, I mean, I understand the points you're making. It's just completely divorced from the goal, which was sober September. You just described four drinks at one meal right there. I know, but the thing is, after that, when we went home, I did not have any mama's juice, which is... Oh, well, that's, you know? that's so impressive. So how long did this last? When did you start drinking again? Saturday night when Bobby and I sat down, we, Megan was at a sleepover, and so Bobby and I went to like a nice dinner, and we sat down, and we looked at each other. I'm like, what are we doing? He's like, okay, oh, so so hang on. So if I'm recalling correctly, you made this announcement to us on Tuesday, the 6th of September. We all came back from Labor Day. You said that the first five days of September didn't count because it was the long weekend through Labor Day. So then you announced sober September on the 6th, and by the 10th, 
you were drinking again. That correct timeline? Pretty impressive, don't you think? No. That is that is one, two, three. You made it four days. <laughs> a lot. You, you made it four days. That's better than your last failure, which was dry January of last year, where you made it, what, 10 days? I think 11. 11 days. So I should say it's not impressive. You're going backwards. Like last year, if I remember correctly, you did dry January and made it 10 or 11 days which was even worse than my own expectation in the office pool. You underperformed. And then this is four days. You are backsliding, Christine. No, no because it was modified. Don't, didn't you hear me in the beginning? It's, it wasn't called. We changed the wording. It wasn't called Sober September. Yeah, but you changed it after the fact. Like, that's not impressive, right? If you're going to commit to doing something and then say, well, actually, I'm going to do the thing that we weren't going to do at all, just not as much, you don't get credit for that. A modification Wait. is not like a, oh, wow, look, good for her. Look at what they've done here. But you're wrong. I did not change it. I changed it while the man, the waiter was making the cocktail. So I didn't have my first sip and then change it. You, you get, yeah, I, I see what you're saying, that you changed the made-up rules just before you started breaking the previous rules. Yeah. Yeah, so... Oh, no, no, is... there was... Okay, uh, we can go back and forth on wording here, but... Yeah, we're, it not, was... we're not really splitting hairs, though. <laughs> I think I think we know what happened here, and I think the audience can judge whether or not you are upholding any standard whatsoever on this. I'm not blaming you. I'm just saying you should maybe not get over your skis so frequently. I feel like you, you, know, you come all excited... Guns blazing out of the gate with some big thing that you're committing to, and then it's just gone. It's it's like you're that kid in middle school who goes through every fad and then loses interest, and then all of a sudden they're super into something else. You're like, oh, let's see how long this one will go, and sort of a diminishing returns effect tends to come into play, and that's kind of what's happening here. But in this case, it's the same sort of obsession – and then falling short repeatedly. See what I'm saying? Yeah, but I think people can relate to me. It's, it's a hard thing to do, and I'm proud of myself, and mm. I'll continue to do good work. And with that being said, I do have a new obsession, Guy, yes. besides it's Mama's Juice. NFL football? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked about this on Friday. Did it stick through the weekend? Did you watch NFL football on Sunday? Are you still, I guess, gaining interest in the sport is this building or are you on the sort of backside of this fad yet oh it's a building it's a building i watched three full games yesterday i watched the lions um and i said phillies but apparently you can't say that so the lions versus the philadelphia eagles eagles yep and i think that i really wanted to watch that game because i had binged uh hard knocks on Saturday. So I was all in on the Lions. <laughs> yes. That's because you're still trying to pick your team. May I advise against the Detroit Lions? Just I have a I have a feeling about that. Yeah, I, everybody here is saying that. But you know what? It's sometimes not about what you do on the field. It's also how you act off the field. And Coach Campbell, you know, he gives it his all and he has you know, that's, heart. That's spoken, that's spoken just like a woman who did Sober September and made it four days, right? Sort of like it's not really about the outcomes so much. Guy, I could also confirm she came in just 
really fired up this morning. Hey, do you want to talk about this with the football on Sunday? Did you see this thing? Did you see that? And she's just all over the place and just absolutely amped up for NFL. I can confirm. Honestly, the fact that you watched three entire football games, that's more than you've watched in your whole life combined, I feel like. Yep. This past week, the past four days, I had watched more football than I ever watched in my entire life. You watched the opening game on Thursday, then you binged hard knocks in preparation for Sunday. This is just like, who is this? So you watched the Detroit-Philadelphia game, then you watched Giants- Titans, which was a very exciting finish, yep, and a win for my Giants on the road. Ballsy two-point conversion at the end. Missed field goal by Tennessee. Which I felt so bad for that guy who, who missed it. Like I, His whole job was that, and he didn't <laughs> yeah, meet up no. to the moment. You should call in. Cookie should call into like sports talk shows around the country. Like, call up some Nashville station. It's Cookie. It's Cookie in Jersey. Uh, short-time listener. First-time listener, first-time caller. That'd be Christine. But your analysis is correct. I'm sure that was a very painful thing for the Titans fans. As a Giants fan, I was happy with the outcome. And then did you end up watching Brady and Sunday Night Football after all? Of course I did. And, boy, what happened to the Cowboys out there? It was a boring game, honestly. And now I guess... But Dak is injured, so I think the Cowboys are in some trouble here. But it wasn't a thing of beauty, but they got it done. The Buccaneers did on the road in Texas. So I'm surprised that you're not just going in for the Bucks and Brady as your team. You know what? I, I, I Listen, it's still on the table. I, I don't know. But I just – I didn't – I was telling – yeah, I don't – I didn't feel connected yet. Mm-hmm. So And also, see. he's not going to be there forever. Right? He was supposed to be retired already. So you don't want to necessarily pick a franchise based on one guy. So I think that you're being judicious. You're you're waiting. I think that that's wise. Maybe less wise is something that I just found out about. You are betting on these games. You're gambling already, Christine. Yeah, I put twenty on the Lions to win. Okay. Well, I mean, there's your. I mean, rookie mistake right there. You know, let's perhaps come back. We've talked about your drinking problem. We'll get to your gambling problem in a future home stretch because we're out of time. But I, this is inauspicious. This is my most concerned thing about your newfound fandom. We'll get to it later in the week with Christine here on the home stretch. In the meantime, I'm off to L.A. doing the show from there the next couple of days. We will talk to you then. Same time, same place. Guy Benson Show. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.